Hi, and welcome to the Vitalist Spark podcast. I'm your host, Marcus Johnson, and today we're talking about Arizona's legislative session with Zeta Dadoff, Health Policy Director with Children's Action Alliance. I know, I know, we're all exhausted from the constant barrage of partisanship and political anger that we hear about on a daily basis. But rest assured, this is not one of those conversations. Instead, this is a conversation that attempts to understand the fundamental power dynamics currently at play within Arizona's legislature and offers an overview of a handful of promising bills you may not be aware of that are moving their way through the lawmaking process. Zeta and I talked on February 25th, 2022, at the end of what is known as crossover week at the legislature. It's often stated that change is the only constant. And that certainly is the case of the legislature. So just know that things may have changed by the time you hear this. We hope you enjoy. Thank you so much to Zeta Dadoff for joining us on the Vitalist Spark podcast today. Zeta, for those of you who don't know, has been a guest on the podcast before. She is the Health Policy Director at Children's Action Alliance, and she is also the Health Policy Director of the Board of Directors for the Arizona Public Health Association. Thanks so much for joining us, Zeta. For those of our listeners who aren't familiar with Children's Action Alliance, you just want to provide like a quick background on CAA and what its mission is. Yeah. Children's Action Alliance is a 501c3 nonprofit, and we really just do state-level advocacy for children and families. So we work in healthcare, obviously, but also across child welfare, education. We do a fair amount of work throughout the state in Southern Arizona and with tribal communities, tribal nations, and tribal members. We also focus quite a bit on the state budget and taxes through our sister nonprofit, the Arizona Center for Economic Progress. It is the legislative session right now. We started seemingly months ago, but it was actually less than two months ago the legislative session started. seems like it's been a lifetime already, but it it initiated, it started in early January. And there are some really interesting health-related bills, community health-related bills that are moving forward. There are some things that are stalled out. Zeta, big picture, where are we in the legislative process right now, roughly 60 some odd days in? We are technically in crossover week at the moment. So this is kind of the deadline week for a bill to get heard in the House or the Senate, whichever chamber of the legislature it originated in, before it has to cross over and be voted on in committees and then go through the full legislative process in the other side. It's kind of an interesting week. It's kind of a voterama at the legislature is what I like to call it, because they will vote on hundreds of bills a day just to kind of get them over, keep them moving and, and keep the process going. Even though we are in crossover week and we're starting to get a better sense on what bills will move forward and what bills likely won't move forward, no bill is officially dead until signy die, basically the end of the end of session. Do you want to talk a little bit more about that, how things can kind of become zombies and rise up from the depths again? I would love to. So I think as of this week, we're officially kind of on striker watch. (laughs) So lawmakers can do this kind of tricksy little move that they like to do where they take a bill that has crossed over, right? It's passed through its original chamber and they essentially replace all of the text with the language from another bill. Typically, they have to do that with the approval of the original bill's sponsor. But sometimes what they'll do is, I like to think they kind of hoard these little bills where they're maybe changing one word or two words just to bring it into compliance with like how we phrase things. 
but then they can take that bill that's passed with this one word change that everyone was like, yeah, okay, whatever, and take all of the language out and replace it with something completely different. So it's one way that lawmakers keep things alive and kind of improve their odds of like getting that bill over the finish line without having to necessarily have full approval of your chamber. So once that bill is crossed, it's technically crossed. It doesn't matter what the text is. And then if it goes back, it would just be kind of a simplified process for for approving it and giving it final life. So that's one way that bills can kind of become zombies and come back to life, essentially. Another way historically, though, is that legislators would just insert bill language into the final budget, kind of subverting the entire committee process, not having any hearings, but still becoming law by being stuck into a final budget. But my understanding is that that's not necessarily going to happen in the same way that it has in the past. Over the years, the legislature has gotten a little bit more liberal in terms of how it writes the rules for spending in that budget process. So typically when we pass a state budget, we have one bill that lays out how much money each agency is going to get and for what. In addition to that, we'll have these other bills that really assign the policy to those spending. So those are called budget reconciliation bills. And probably a few of the listeners will remember last year, we saw a whole bunch of policy language that did not pass the legislature, including things like bans on mask mandates, bans on vaccine mandates, and some other language that was really not related to how our state agencies needed to spend their money that was outlined in those budget reconciliation bills or BURBs. There was a lawsuit that was filed to challenge that, and several of those provisions were found to be in violation of the state constitution's single subject rule, which basically says, like, if I have a bill that's about beekeeper license plates, that entire bill has to be about beekeeper license plates. Really excited about beekeeper license plates, by the way. That's a new license plate coming to Arizona, I hope. But you can't then use that bill titled Billkeeper License Plates to pass a restriction on sex ed in schools, right? Like you've got to kind of keep them germane to the subject. You have to match the the content to the title. And we found that people are kind of pushing that a little bit more to get through some of these priorities that don't very frankly have the support of either chamber without some kind of quid pro quo in the budget. Let's stay big picture now with the state legislature. Let's talk about the politics without getting overly partisan or political. But what do the politics look like at the legislature? What's the, the makeup in the Senate and the House? And what are some of like the, the larger themes that are underpinning the various bills that are moving forward? There's a lot of different dynamics at play. And I think that really if, if you enjoy constant conflict and chaos, then state politics is 100% for you. We have really, really narrow margins right now in both the House and the Senate. So we have currently a, a Republican majority in both chambers and a Republican governor, but Republicans only have two more votes technically than Democrats. But that makes it really hard to get a majority on something unless you've got everybody in your party aligned on an issue. 
And so what we've seen on a couple of bills lately is not necessarily this capital letter B bipartisanship, but a lot more willingness to go against somebody's party to vote on a particular issue, a lot more division within the parties on certain issues, particularly related to health and healthcare and social determinants. And then another really interesting thing that's at play this year is that we have, I think it's 13 people in the legislature who were not there last year. It's their first year in the legislature or they've come back after previously having been seated. Given that we do have a citizen legislature, that these are people who are working in other professions and other industries, right? Like you don't make a ton of money as a state lawmaker. And so they all have other interests, other priorities in their lives. The vast majority of them also have other jobs that they're doing. So it makes it really interesting because we will see, I don't know how many bills have been filed this year. Last year, there were about 1,700 bills that were filed. And that means that kind of by necessity, these folks who are real estate agents or emergency room doctors are having to pass legislation that goes kind of a a mile wide and an inch deep. That's kind of where they have to keep their level of knowledge because nobody could hold that amount of content in their head and really get into the nitty gritty of how these things work. So I always like to clarify, like, you know, the people who are making our laws about reproductive justice and about vaccine mandates and about affordable housing are really not, not doctors, not housing specialists, not social workers, not necessarily as well-versed in all of the nuances of these policies as the folks who listen to this podcast might be. And so it's really up to us to help explain those nuances, really explain why this is going to be an issue or how this would impact your community. There's this other really fun thing going on right now. So every 10 years, Every state goes through a redistricting process. This process is kind of designed to help, in in theory, to allow for underrepresented or under-resourced groups to have a voice in state politics and to have a voice in federal politics. We know that that's not always how it works. And in particular, this redistricting process has been very, very fraught. So the 2020 census we know was not accurate. It had a lot of things working against it. You know, we can look at the fact that we were in a global pandemic, people were locked down and sheltering in place for a lot of the period that the census was being collected. And then we also had these kind of bigger picture rhetoric at the federal level, this question of whether or not to add a citizenship question to the U.S. census, the question of whether or not to do all male census, like things like that kind of have, have popped up over the years as discussion. They get talked about a lot and they kind of scare people off, very frankly. Like it, it makes it a much more difficult choice. It kind of undermines trust in the process of census collection. And because of that, Arizona had been kind of poised to pick up an additional seat in Congress. But because of the undercount, we didn't meet the threshold that we would have needed to do that. That undercount, it's really important, I think, to, to clarify that it is largely among communities that are underrepresented or under-resourced at the state legislature. It's our indigenous communities. It's our our Black, Indigenous, and people of color communities that are not being counted in the same way. And so that impacts how our representation and our redistricting processes happen. And I think it's going to be a very different legislature next year than this year, and a very different legislature this year than it was last year. And it just cascades. We all live in a certain legislative district. If we're in legislative district 28, the boundary of legislative district 28 and the people who are representing legislative district 28, if they do get reelected into next year, they're going to be representing potentially a different boundary 
So theoretically, that individual, those individuals who are elected into office are there to represent their districts. And so that representation could look different or they may not be reelected into office based off of what that new district looks like and what the voters in that new district decide that they want in an elected official, which kind of gets to the point about the upcoming elections. That's something that's kind of just swirling around in the air and in the ethos of the legislature that isn't necessarily directly spoken about every single day in the policymaking, but is definitely influencing the way that some of our elected officials are thinking, I assume. Absolutely. There are very few districts that have emerged from this redistricting process that have identical slates to what's currently serving the legislature. So we have several districts that do not have any incumbent legislators that are currently living within those district boundaries. And that is really tricky. The other thing that has kind of happened is we've seen a little bit of a decentralization of political power by one party or the other, and a lot more districts that are now really at play. And so behind the scenes, everybody's kind of doing this calculus of how do I position myself for re-election? Do I need to lean a little bit more liberal or a little bit more conservative than I typically would, how will my vote on this particular issue be received by my voters? We've had a few folks who have been thinking about moving to other districts, and that's really tricky because they would have to resign their current seats to go run in another district if they wanted to. So it's all over the board. And there are a lot of, in addition to all of the political poker chips that are being played, there is this other big picture idea of redistricting that's also happening. I remember, you know, when I started working in health policy, and I think a lot of people think this way, that we need to focus on the policy for the sake of the policy and for the impact of the potential policy. And while that is true, there is also the politics that are surrounding each one of these policies that are moving forward or not moving forward at the legislature. So, for example, this past week, we have heard a lot about the aggregate expenditure limit within Arizona's education system. On its face, There are dollars that have been approved by the state legislature in this past year that say, yes, education, schools, school districts, you can spend this money, but in part due to policy, but also due to the politics surrounding the situation, it was a really, really heavy lift to actually allow those schools to use those dollars this year. I know this isn't something that Children's Action Alliance and especially your work with health policy dives deeply into. But it is one of those things that we are hearing about often in the news. And we got some good news this week. The legislature had a deadline of March 1st to either choose to lift this cap. That cap was put in place in the early 1980s. Very different Arizona at that time. Very different population. Very different voter base. It was passed at the ballot box. And basically what it did was it said, we want to ensure that Arizona remains fiscally conservative in how it's funding public schools. We want to make sure that X percent of our state budget is the maximum that the state could spend on public ed. And we're talking, of course, about public district schools. That gets a little bit complicated. And I think I would argue rightly, there is a restriction that prohibits the legislature from overturning something or amending something that has passed at the ballot box. That's a citizen's initiative without a supermajority of votes. And so supermajority is 
two thirds. Yeah. You know, that's meant to kind of protect the will of the voters from just being overridden by the legislature. In this situation, it's tricky because this bill has been on the books since 1980. It's kept school funding at 1980. And Senate President Fan said earlier this week, that was before we had Chromebooks. That was before we had remote learning. That was before Arizona had the growing and expansive population that we currently have and all of the needs for school expenditures, school investments, building codes, et cetera. So that limit, thankfully, was waived essentially by the Senate earlier this week. And it was tricky. I think a lot of people weren't sure if it was going to happen or not. The Senate last week did not have the Republican votes that it needed to pass this. They were able to get to 20 votes in the Senate. Two thirds. We did it. They were able to get there this week, finally. But it is, again, a temporary fix. So this is not a long term solution to the school funding cap. It's a one year okay, you can spend this money that we already allocated you, that you've already budgeted for. Next year, we're going to have to talk again. So I think that there is more of an ongoing conversation about what school spending is going to look like in the coming years, whether this vote on the aggregate expenditure limit is going to trigger some kind of negotiation about expanded school vouchers or empowerment scholarship accounts, school choice initiatives that are very popular among conservatives right now. And so it kind of remains to be seen what the negotiation has been here, what we're going to see out of it. And still sticking to some of the bills and the legislation that we've heard a lot about in the news. Obviously, there are numerous bills related to voting rights and voter suppression We've heard a lot about the ability or inability of teachers to talk about race and gender in the classrooms. There have been quite a few bills that have been introduced that we've heard about with regard to LGBTQ populations that would actually enhance discrimination for those specific populations. And we've heard a lot about housing. All those things are going on, and we could dedicate an entire podcast to each one of those areas, including the aggregate expenditure limit and what's going on in education. But I wanted to take a few minutes to dive into some of the legislation that we don't hear as much about. That's equally important, though. I know that Children's Action Alliance has been taking the lead, at least on a couple of different children's health insurance-related bills that have been moving through the legislature. So do you want to take a couple of moments and Tell us about some hopefully knock on wood promising news for kids health insurance coverage in Arizona. So there are a couple of things that we've been looking at. And, you know, the pandemic has really brought attention to the fact that how you have health coverage matters, how easily you can get treatment and care early is is very important. One thing that we're really excited about at the federal level, there's been a ton of momentum around the U.S. maternal mortality and morbidity rates. We have too many people dying during pregnancy and in the year after giving birth. And so one thing that has been identified as a solution over and over, it's recommended as best practice, is to extend postpartum Medicaid coverage. So right now, in Medicaid, you are required to have coverage for 60 days after your pregnancy ends. But a large proportion of the instances of severe morbidities among recently pregnant 
people and the instances of mortality happen after that 60-day mark. It's also worth noting that many people do not qualify for that 60 days of postpartum coverage. So that's really only available to you if you are otherwise completely eligible for Medicaid. We could waive that requirement. We could devote state dollars to providing comprehensive health coverage to anybody, regardless of whether or not they qualify for Medicaid or not. But for now, we're really looking at at just extending that period to a full year. Really interestingly, this is a place where we see significant health disparities, particularly for Indigenous individuals in the state are significantly more likely to die in the year after pregnancy. That recent report by the Department of Health Services found that all of those cases could have been prevented with access to affordable comprehensive health coverage. So obviously that's an issue that goes beyond just health insurance and to how we structure healthcare in the state, but it's really significant. It's worth noting. Maternal mortality rate for native women is something like four times that of white populations in Arizona. So right now individuals have 60 days of Medicaid coverage after having given birth. This would extend it to a full year after having given birth. And is that for anybody and everybody in the state of Arizona, or are there specific requirements around who's eligible for that? No, it is not for anybody and everybody. Medicaid has requirements beyond income that we talk about and beyond circumstance. So if you are pregnant, then you also have to meet X, Y, and Z other kind of criteria to qualify for Medicaid. One of them is income eligibility. So right now, um, Arizona effectively covers people who are pregnant who are earning up to 161% of the federal poverty level. Weird number there, 161%. Don't know where you fall on that spectrum. And then you also have to meet residency and citizenship requirements. So right now, a large proportion of immigrant individuals may be eligible to have their birth covered, but do not qualify for postpartum care or for prenatal care. We know that that drives up health risks significantly for people who are pregnant and not having prenatal care is not good for anybody. So that would not change, sadly, under this particular measure. This is really just looking at that period of time that somebody has coverage after pregnancy. A really interesting component of that, I think, is you know, when you have a baby, it's really recommended that you follow up with your OBGYN at six weeks, right? You can address anything that's going on physically or mentally at that visit. They do screenings for things like postpartum depression and anxiety, and they can help with referrals in the event that somebody is experiencing high blood pressure or eclampsia or diabetes after they deliver. There's a number of different things that they can really look for at that visit. And right now, Arizona is really not doing a great job at getting people in for that visit, which makes sense because, hey, we've got this kind of limited pool of providers who serve access participants. And then we've also got this very short window that they can come in for that. So they've got to come in between 42 and 60 days if they qualify for that coverage period to begin with. And then they've got to arrange transportation and childcare and get to that appointment and get it scheduled and figure out all of the other things that that go into being there. So they've got like this two week window to get in for that appointment. We're hoping that extending that coverage window will allow more people to get in for postpartum screenings. Tell us a little bit more about your strategy behind moving some of this legislation forward. And for those who are tracking it at the legislature, the bill number is? Senate Bill 1272. 1272. And is this Children's Action Alliance that is the one and only organization that is helping to move this legislation forward? Or are there others that are 
at your side? Absolutely not. There's so many groups that have come to the table who care about this effort. We've been working really closely with March of Dimes and with the American College of OBGYNs, ACOG. We've been working closely with the Arizona Family Health Partnership, with Arizona Birth Workers of Color, with some of the Head Start programs and Healthy Start programs in South Phoenix, and with so many other groups that have an interest one way or another in improving postpartum and early childhood outcomes, as well as pregnancy outcomes. So it's a really wonderful coalition that that has come together that represents a whole bunch of different perspectives from definitely don't agree on all parts of, of pregnancy or reproductive health care, but that really understands the necessity of getting people in for coverage. And you've come up with some pretty creative ways of of getting the attention of legislators about this issue, no? We are preparing to deliver postcards next week. We have a stork lined up who's going to be delivering bundles of postcards to the legislature, really just reminding them of these issues. We've got images and graphics that people can share out. And we've been really just trying to raise as much awareness as we can of this need. So everybody, I think everyone can agree that like kids are important. They're the next people. I think that there's a lot of consensus and a lot of value sharing that happens on this particular issue that has allowed us to bring all of those people to the table. Okay. So that's the postpartum legislation that's moving forward. And there's also some legislation that Children's Action Alliance has looked at with regard to kids care and trying to make it easier for kids and their families to keep children on kids care for a longer period of time. So right now, somebody qualifies for kids care if they're in this kind of category that often gets called the working poor. So they're earning a little bit too much to qualify for Medicaid, but not quite enough to comfortably afford health insurance through an employer if it's being offered through their employer. We know that a lot of folks who are in this coverage category are employed in multiple part-time jobs or in shift work that might not guarantee affordable health coverage, particularly for their dependents. So we would love, love, love to see this extended to Medicaid as well. That wasn't in the cards for this year, unfortunately, but we will ideally see a change in how people are retained on the kids' care roles. We know that family income fluctuates, especially if you're in that category of workers that is earning an hourly wage. You might have a month with three pay periods. You might have a week where you pick up a couple hours of overtime. You might get holiday pay. Any of those things can lead to these really temporary fluctuations in a family's income that can be enough to push them just over the threshold. So we account for about a 5% fluctuation currently in our formula. But what winds up happening is that access goes through and performs these routine checks. They just verify that people aren't enrolled in Medicaid in multiple states, haven't moved somewhere or died or you know any, any number of other things. And what that can end up doing is triggering an inquiry essentially with the family. So if they do see that minor fluctuation, that holiday pay reflected on a paycheck, it can trigger a request for information. Families get these in the mail. They have to provide all of their pay stubs. They have to provide a whole bunch of different documentation in order to retain their coverage at that point. And typically they have about two weeks to do that. So that can be really, really hard, especially for folks who are living in rural areas to A, get that letter in that two week period and then respond to it in time to keep their kids' health coverage. So that is something that we've been working on administratively, looking at how these processes are working, but we're also looking at a legislative fix that would basically say if your family qualifies for kids care at any point during the year based on income eligibility and you've enrolled in that program, 
your child can stay connected to that coverage for the full year, even if your family income changes. And it is moving. It is moving. It is in the Senate's hands now. So, all right. Congratulations. Thank you. That's House Bill 2551, sponsored by Representative Cobb. All right. So, I know that Children's Action Alliance is looking at a number of other bills that are moving forward right now. I'm going to ask you to put on your Arizona Public Health Association hat for a moment. We actually have the executive director, Mr. Will Humble, on regularly to talk about COVID 19 on our COVID 19 roundtable. But what are some of the other public health related bills that are moving forward and may be positive or moving forward and might not be so positive, or maybe they're not moving forward anymore. And maybe that's a good thing. We've seen a whole bunch of public health related bills this year. And I always like to say like for every bill that you see, you can almost guarantee that if it's on a contentious issue, there's an exact polar opposite bill that has also been introduced. So we tend to focus on the bad ones, but I also want to just give credit to the folks who are proposing these really wonderful public health interventions or really comprehensive health programs. One of the things that we have been working as part of a coalition led by the American Heart Association, the American Cancer Society, and the American Lung Society, as well as the Campaign for Tobacco-Free Kids, is on tobacco control. So this is really interesting. Arizona is one of very few states in the nation that does not have a retail tobacco license. So if I want to sell cigarettes, I could do that like out of the back of my car as long as I was paying and collecting the appropriate taxes on that product or on that transaction. It makes it really, really difficult to regulate the industry when we don't have that comprehensive knowledge of who is selling tobacco and where. And it means that there's really no stick at the end of the carrot for retailers. So we know that many retailers are doing the right thing. They're checking IDs and they're they're making sure that they're not selling to kids. But if they do happen to be caught selling to kids, it's like a $500 fine and they can just rack up $500 fines, right? There's no end to the number of fines that they can incur. They don't lose anything. And so one of the things that the Campaign for Tobacco-Free Kids, the heart and lung and cancer are doing is looking at what a good tobacco retail license would look like in this state, what good enforcement would look like, and how we can ensure that cities and towns and counties have the ability to go above and beyond that. So we want to lay a solid foundation that would apply across the state and then allow them to build from there. What the tobacco industry wants is kind of the polar opposite of that. So they've kind of come in, they've said, yes, we've done some terrible things. That's right. But you know what? We do need to be regulated. And this is how you should do it. It's really important to recognize that the tobacco industry is not planning to regulate themselves out of business. If they wanted to do that, they could just stop selling tobacco. That would be a solution. But what they really want to do is they want to prevent cities and towns from doing things that we know are in the interest of public health, like banning flavored tobacco sales, banning retailers within certain distances of a school or a daycare facility or a park or something like that. So they want to put the roof on the house and no one can go above it or else they would suffer consequences. So that's all being kind of negotiated. There's also been some contention about where this retail license will be housed. A lot of conversation has been about putting it within the Department of Liquor Licensing and Control. And what tobacco advocates would really prefer is that that license be housed within the Department of Health Services. They're already doing the retail licensing for marijuana distributors. They have the staff. They have a study source of funding that would allow them to investigate these these issues. And it's really much more in line with the goal of this regulation, which is like 
let's not create smokers, right? Let's not create vapors. Let's let's control this and provide alternatives. The tobacco industry would prefer to see that license housed in the Department of Liquor Control and Licensing, which it's been pointed out is right now not able to meet the needs of liquor license I think is what you would say within the state. They aren't able to do those routine inspections and to do that kind of follow-up right now because they are underfunded and they don't have the staffing capacity to carry out the work that they've already been tasked with. So it's just kind of a reflection of this small government, let's streamline costs, let's do less regulation effort played out at the retail level. So the goal is that big tobacco doesn't regulate itself. Yes, that's what we're really working on, (laughs) as much as they would like to. I also know that there's some legislation moving forward, and this is in part, I think, related to some of the tobacco provisions, but there's legislation moving forward to enhance access to SNAP benefits for individuals who have prior felonies for having used or possessed drugs. Is that correct? Yeah, this bill was put forth by Representative Blackman, who has a really strong interest in criminal justice reform and in looking at how we engage in rehabilitation. So the bill essentially removes a requirement that was previously instated that would require folks who had prior drug convictions going back like 30 years at this point from receiving SNAP benefits without jumping through additional hoops to get them. We know that denying somebody access to healthy food is not a way to keep them off drugs. And it's really not working towards this end goal of a healthy community, a well-fed community, and a community that doesn't need drugs. So that's moving to the Senate. And again, we think it's just a really a good way to help people stay connected to the supports that they need in order to get through recovery. I know there are dozens of other bills that you are tracking, but for our listeners who want to get involved or who are interested in learning more about some of the work of Children's Action Alliance, the Arizona Public Health Association, what would be your advice to them on how to learn more or potentially get involved? Sure. I can say Children's Action Alliance leads a whole bunch of coalitions throughout the state. So if you're interested in a particular issue, if you're interested in children's health coverage or child welfare or any number of other issues, just reach out. We'll make sure that you get in the right person's inbox, so to speak and help you find a place for that. We also have the Oral Health Coalition under our umbrella. I have to give a quick shout out to AZOHC. If you're interested in public health or working in public health and are not yet a member of the Arizona Public Health Association, I would say go ahead and do that. It's a very affordable membership. You get this weekly update from Will Humble about what's going on, what's moving at the state level. And then also, I think a lot of people don't quite understand the process. They don't quite understand how to get engaged and how the state legislature works. There are so many groups out there that can help you better understand that process. I put my CAA hat back on. We're always happy to do training on the request to speak system or, you know, advocacy 101. It's super easy. We can put that together in like five minutes if you want. So just let me know, feel free to reach out and share your needs or your thoughts. Fantastic. Zeta Dadoff. Health Policy Director at Children's Action Alliance, Health Policy Director for the Arizona Public Health Association's Board of Directors, just incredible advocate and asset for the people of the state of Arizona. Thank you so much for joining us today, Zeta. Thank you, Marcus. Thanks for having me. Thank you, Zeta, for helping us to better understand the power dynamics underpinning the wild legislative process. 
as well as some of the lesser known bills that will impact community health. To our audience who wants to learn more or get involved, check out the websites of Children's Action Alliance, azchildren.org, and the Arizona Public Health Association, azpha.org. And if you want to know more about a specific bill, visit the Arizona Legislature's website. That's azleg.gov. And enter the bill number of interest at the top right of the screen. To date, there have been over 1,800 bills introduced during this legislative session. So we're sure you'll find something of interest. Many thanks, as always, to the team at Gordon C. James PR and Star Worldwide Networks for editing and sound design. If you like this podcast, you can find all of our podcasts on our website, vitalisthealth.org, or search for Vitalist Spark on your favorite podcast platform. Until next time, take care of yourselves and each other.